was. Last week, as we uh, finished up our look at spiritual maturity, we defined spiritual maturity for the purposes of our study. That it is to be so aware of who you are in Christ that it profoundly affects the way you see God, yourself, and others. So if your faith in Christ, if your Christianity does not at least meet that bar, then something's wrong. And it's not to say that we're doing a good job always with that. That should be the least of it. That what we learn in Scripture about what how Christ pulled us out of the miry clay should affect us in such a way that it has a profound effect on us. So it's not divided over pet doctrines. That is, spiritual maturity is not divided over pet doctrines or over emphasized peripheral doctrines or systems. Spiritual maturity understands what is important and what is not and will not let minor differences be a in other words, spiritual maturity is to learn truth, but not be spiritual immaturity. It is to learn truth, but not be affected by truth. And then I thought maybe this would be one thing else to remember from last week. Whatever floats your boat, whoever you like to read after, but judging effect, but judge the effect following the teaching or that doctrine that you want to make so much over. Is it making you more like Christ? Is it helping you and making you a better husband, wife, father, mother, employee, church member, more loving, more helpful, a peacemaker that can help you understand the gospel? These are the things that we are to be looking for in the Bible study of those that we follow after. Okay, so we come to the latter part of First Corinthians, which has a special place in my Thinking, remember when uh, the Lord began to show me the doctrines of grace that is the sovereignty of God and salvation, and I, we were debating with my roommate, you know, up until the night, and I eventually got to that point where I thought, wait, I, I am starting to argue against what the Bible is teaching, and I had to start to realize, no, the Bible, if it says anything, it is that God is sovereign, it is sovereign in salvation as well, and this is one of those places where as I began to study, I thought, this is such an obvious place. I, I've seen it before. I've heard about it before. But it's like sometimes the Lord opens up your eyes and you read a passage for the first time. And you're thinking, where has this been? And really, where have I been? This is one of those passages that so well and clearly demonstrates not just the sovereignty of God in salvation, but it also tells us, and we'll get to this more next week, that this is not just a minor difference between Christians. It's very important that we understand where ourselves, who we owe our salvation to, and that we had no part in it, because God has devised, devised it in such a way so that He alone gets the glory. And so this is of utmost importance. It matters whether you believe God is sovereign in salvation. And this is one of the want to look at this today as we started this book. The Corinthian Christians were characterized by quarrels and by a party spirit. And I don't mean party necessarily as people out there party, but two 
and the following after. In verse 13, Paul indicates that he constantly emphasizes health as he constantly emphasizes elsewhere, namely that divisions are contrary to Christ and the gospel. Why then do Christians get caught up in quarrels and strife? The answer can be multi-faceted, but it seems straightforward enough and simple, and that is pride. When we don't get along with somebody, it's because of pride, especially when Christians don't get along. Because of the person's desire to think for himself as being superior to somebody else, or my position is superior, or what I need, my problems are more important than your problems, with all the different things that we of my opinion. If one can identify with a leader who he perceives to be superior to all others, then, then he, as a follower, can feel superior to somebody else. And, and certainly that's one of the things that's going on here. But we know that all sin ultimately goes back and is based on pride because it is pride that led to Satan's fall, which led to our fall. Satan's not content be underneath God, but wanted to be done. But it seems clear as we start in verse 18 that Paul uses the gospel as a motivation for unity among believers. Notice that he says for. He's been talking about unity and why we need to have unity, and he's so for would connect it to that. So he said, I want you to think about where you came from. Think about how God saved you, and that that is going to help you have a more humble understanding of yourself and help you to get along with others more effectively. In these days, and it's really not any different than today, but uh, it's, it's all error just repackages itself into generations. Nothing ever really changes the life state behind everything. But in those days, human reasoning reigns supreme. Today, popular opinion does political correctness, but it's all the same thing. It is human reason. It is to abandon the Bible for whatever I think is right. And it reigns supreme. The ancient Greeks had as many as 50 different philosophical parties. Each one offered its own worldview, which is what everybody wants and everybody needs. It is a worldview, is a reason and purpose for life. It is why I exist, and it is what I have to do in my life. We all need that. Of course, the Bible offers God's worldview. It's, it's better to have the created worldview than one of the 50 philosophical views or all the ones that are available today. So what was normal, though, for these saints to pick a guru and follow him, because that's just kind of how it was done. That's what Jesus said with the Jews. You had your rabbi. Which rabbi do you follow? His twist on Bible, his twist on religion. You know, I like this guy. That's all the Christians are doing. That's what, that's what we all do. It is. We all have a tendency to do. And I certainly still do. And while humanity has learned much through experience and experiments, uh, you know, there are smart people, thank God, for smart people, scientists, and people who have vision, uh, who, who see ways that can help mankind, make life easier, and all that kind of stuff. But when all this is done apart from truth, they will always run afoul. They will always take it in the direction they should not. 
If there's wisdom, constantly changing. Because what was right or true ten years ago, unfortunately, and for some odd reason, is no longer right. But if our wisdom rests upon the rock of ages, it will not change. The verses twenty through twenty one, we see that God says that man has failed to come to wisdom on his own. Notice what it says. Let's just start reading verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly, foolishness. Word is where we get the word moron in Greek. It is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will force. So God intentionally here, we'll talk about these verses a little bit more in the quote of the Old Testament. God says, I purposely am doing things in a way that the world is offended by. And I'm doing that so that when, through the foolishness of preaching something that the world hates, and people, for some strange reason, believe it and are transformed by it, we know it's not through graphic preaching or human endeavor, but it must be the power of God that is doing it. Because it is the, the preaching of the cross is so lame to the world that the only way you can explain its success is God. And that's, in one sense, one of the primary points that Paul is making. And then in verse 20 to 21, where is the one who is wise? Where is God? Where is the debater of this age? Has God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of the, what we preach to save those who believe. Here God says that man has failed to come to wisdom on his own. On his own. So remember, wisdom begins with the knowledge and fear of God. And it says here that the world did not know God through wisdom. In other words, man cannot just come uh, to understand God through the, the natural revelation that he had through his own wisdom. It is darkness, you know. And uh, so it, he's going to need a special revelation where we can know God because he, he cannot be known outside in, in human wisdom. He must be known through special revelation. And so the gospel so humbles us. It is so counterintuitive to the way fallen man thinks that those that believe must be enabled from without. In other words, the natural man, and we see this demonstrated all the time, I've got to do something to earn God's favor. I've got to please Him. I've got to do some work to please God. I've got to do it. And the gospel says, no, you can't do anything. God must do it. And the natural man, remember, who is enveloped in his pride, basis of sin is, is pride wants no part of it. And if, if this verse, if these passages say anything, this is uh, here for Christians, it is that uh, the natural man uh, hates what is the, the, the gospel, doesn't get it, doesn't understand it. This whole section demonstrates that the sovereignty of God in the gospel message, it alone saves. That man cannot, it doesn't just 
get the gospel, he hates the gospel. And he's lost it. He says, the arrogance of man is, is all through these verses. Man assumes that in a few short years, he can figure out life apart from the life giver. But the essence of the gospel is that we can know nothing or do nothing of value and to know how to get right with God and that all that is left for us to cast ourselves on the very mercy and grace of God. It is the opposite of what for human reason takes it. Human reason exalts man and his reason as the answer to all our problems. God says no, uh, if you, if you know because of the fall of your darkness, it will only lead you away from God. The essence of the gospel is that we can know nothing or do nothing of value to get right with God. The idea that I can't do anything but must trust in what Christ has done is foolishness to the way the world thinks. And so the idea that when we preach the gospel, there are some who for some unknown reason are going to believe, and some who are not, is not biblical. The Bible says no one believe God, no one loves God, we've all gone out of the way. And notice here that he's going to talk about Jews who demand a sign and Greeks who see it as foolishness. There's no third type of person. This covers everybody, Jew and Gentile. There's no third type of person who says, oh, I get the gospel when they hear it and I'm going to believe. No. I I once heard a preacher say that Man's heart is there's like two types of man of heart in this. And it's it's a, uh, and he likened our hearts like clay. And he says, When the gospel is preached, some men's heart that clay heart and they reject it. But some men over here, their heart is softened because the gospel softens the clay, their heart and they believe. Well no, that I don't find that in scripture. There's all men are lost in sin. There's not some that have a better heart than others. And even if that was the case, who gave them the heart to start with? God would decide whether you have a hard heart or a soft heart. So it still goes back to God. But there's no, there's not three different kinds of people. There's not Jews who see the gospel as, uh, they want a sign, they reject it, which is bad, Greeks seek foolishness. And then this third group that, uh, Oh, we like the gospel. We, we like it. We, we believe it. No. And what it's telling us is only one kind of sinner and the lost sinner who hates the gospel, who is to do it, it's moronic. But what makes the difference? Well, the, this text is telling us that God makes the difference. If follow man's main problem is his pride, then God is ordained to save man by demanding that he abandon all his pride and good work, and admits he is completely undone and at the mercy of God alone. And anyone who hasn't come to that point is not saved. He has to say by the gospel. So verse 19 lays out a foundational principle that what God is doing looks purposely weak and silly to the law, but that is exactly why he does what he does. He wants to save people through a message that all men reject, and so that when we're left, well, why did this one believe and that one didn't believe, we say God uh, opened his heart, and we'll see some verses that deal with that as well.
notice here in Job 5.12, he frustrates the devices of crafting so that their hands achieve no success. There's a general application to this, but what Paul is saying is this applies specifically to the gospel. He quotes Isaiah 29.14 here. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their watchmen shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. Paul paraphrases this, and he's saying that, that what this is really looking forward to, or at least one application, is that God is going to save in a way that the natural man wants nothing to do with. So this isn't saying that fallen man can't know a lot and have a measure of wisdom that everything that the lost person will be long or anything like that. But we're speaking about the foundational principles of life. The regenerate man knows that all he knows, all he has, comes from God, and he gives him the credit for that, the praise, the thanksgiving, and he honors him with what he has. Fallen man only gives himself credit and glorifies himself whatever he has, he uses for himself. But in the end, it's going to bring ruin. And so it's foolishness that that's the best the natural man can do. But how is God's calling salvation a foundational truth to us that allows us to live in unity with one another? Because Paul is using this uh, as, in one way to say that this should cause unity. And what is there about this calling that gives the assurance that I will never be lost? There's a couple of things we want to look at today. If, you know, if someone calls me over, come over to their house, gives me an invitation. There is nothing in that invitation that sees to it that I'm going to get there. And there's nothing in the invitation that's going to cause me to want to go. And yet, we're, Paul is saying that when God calls you, there's something in that call that yet creates in you the power to come and the desire to come. As we will see, he is speaking of the effective call, not preached in general. We can see that in verses 23 and 24. He says, but we preach Christ crucified. And there's the general call. That's what I'm doing today. I'm preaching, I'm calling out with my voice the gospel of Christ, sufficiency of the cross. And that call, that, that, that uh, relate, relating of the gospel, is foolishness to the, to the Jews. He says that the Jews want a sign, the Jews want wisdom. It's a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, so it's a different group. You've got a general call that everybody hears, that they're here. There's an inward call that the redeemed, that the elect hear, that that they they hear differently. Both Jew and Greek, those who are called, it is Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. They get it. The effectual call creates what it demands. Because the gospel is not a neutral thing that we try to convince people to believe in Jesus Christ because everybody was born to this world hating God. And so if the if the gospel doesn't go with 
power, no one is going to be saved. So how does this become a solid rock that we can make our lives on? Well, first of all, God does the following. And this text makes this very clear. Uh, I am not doing the following. I, I have given a general call when I preach the gospel. But God does this effective following. Second Thessalonians 2.13 But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, the love by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruit to be saved. Nowhere in the Bible does anybody ever get thanked for our salvation other than God. It's never, it's never appropriate to go up to somebody and say, I'm so thankful that you died me. I'm so thankful that you had enough sin to get saved or whatever. You don't thank them because they didn't do anything except what God gave them the power to do. God is always thankful. And why? Thank for what? Because God chose you as the first fruit to be saved through sanctification. There's the calling Holy Spirit. The Spirit setting you apart and believes in the truth. So the Spirit regenerates us, gives us life, and then we are enabled to believe in the truth. To this, He calls you through our gospel. So see, our gospel, Paul says, He preached the gospel. And through that, God gave an efficacious call, an effective call, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 1, let's see, I'll get that just a second. So it relates clearly here that he calls to the gospel. It just stated in the first two of First Corinthians that Christianity is God's work to begin with to the church of God that is important to those sanctified in Jesus Christ, all to be saved together, with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So he's just repeating what he started in verse 2. He's doing something in us. This is not just another philosophical religion of man. If we think Christianity is just another view of man, another religion, we're not going to take it seriously and we're going to fail to understand what's being said here. You can be converted to a false religion. And in the world's eyes, when I'm converted, I decide, you know what, I don't like Roman Catholicism, I don't like evangelicalism, I'm going to become, I'm going to convert to Islam. I've made a decision. And there's a lot of even Christians who think that's really all Christianity is, that, that we just, we're, we're, we're at the score of the score of religion, and for some reason I'm going to Christianity. It makes the most sense. That's not what we're reading here. Christianity is something in which there's got to be an inward transformation, and there's not a one of us who can do that without God. God's got to do it. And when that transformation takes place, we are converted, we are changed. You know, you have the conversion thing. It's a man that is converted to something else, another purpose. The word converted, it's not that I've decided to sign my name on the dotted line. I've converted into a new creation. God has done a work. And if you don't understand that, you're not going to have any idea really what Paul's saying here, or what Christianity is, and why it is not the 
to another religion. Because no other religion demands and requires there are those in the power of the cross and that it can justify us if we decide to believe. But notice that is not what Paul is saying here. Now Paul talks about the power of the work of Christ on the cross. But it doesn't say in this case, uh, the, the verse 18, the cross is powerful, but the word of the cross is powerful. Notice that. There's some mystery. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it, the word, the gospel, is the power of God. So, it's one thing to believe that the death of Christ is effective, that it can save, that it can justify. But what Paul is getting at here is that it is to, that when the gospel is preached, it comes with power from the Holy Spirit. Romans 1.16 For I am not ashamed of the gospel, the good news, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, but also to the Jew. For in it, it is the gospel, it is the good news, the righteousness of God is revealed from face to face, rather than Christian righteousness shall live by faith. So, the gospel, if it doesn't come with the power of God, it falls on death but it comes here Paul says the gospel comes in power so that the one elected and in the gospel we hear about the righteousness of God and how to get it because the elect here is the, the powerful power now obviously there is power in the work of Christ and God it is an actual sufficient substitution and sacrifice that saves power of the gospel is the Holy Spirit causing us to agree with it, whereas before we connect with it, a lot of people said, I'll make that true for But when it comes to the power of the Holy Spirit, we are given life and power to obey. And so first of all, the uh, calling of God comes from God alone. Secondly, the call of God is effective, and of course we've already been dealing with that, but we see that in verses 22 to 23. Four, where the Jews demand a sign preach uh, wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. But to those, and of course, in verse 24 refers to the call, but to those who are called to that second group, it is not three groups, there's, there's lost, there's unbelievers, and then there are what? Believers. To those who are called by the power of God. So as we said, it creates power for what it comes for what it commands us to do. It does in us what it demands. I think one thing that many fail to understand is that the gospel is a call to repent and believe. The gospel is not a mere invitation. It is that. Jesus invited them, he invited to Christ, to come to Christ, but through a command to repent and believe. You can't come to Christ if you bypass repentance and belief. So I invite God lifts us up on his shoulders and brings us. See, when the uh, elect hear the gospel and the Lord's going to save him, he, as the Lord demonstrated in this parable, 
you take that lost sheep and you put them on his shoulders, it's his power that gets them there. These verses say that the world is fit telling that the trust of someone who lived so long ago that there is nothing they can do in order to please God. He says that the religious crowd wants some sign from God in order to believe and in the due. They admit there is a God, but they expect it to go through their hoop. And we, we, last week, on Resurrection Sunday, we talked about why the Jews were offended, right? We dealt with Isaiah 53, which was the first part of that chapter. It's all about the Jews not getting, not being offended by what they saw on the cross. There's no way that God's going to allow Messiah to hang on a tree and become first. They want a sign of power, because in Jewish history, God has demonstrated miraculously over and over again, you know, like across the Red Sea and so forth, and so that's what they want. Miracles are a big part of their history. Why would he need to be hurt? They weren't sinners that needed substitute, they could fix their own lives. Did the average Jew uh, believe that uh, just being connected to the bloodline of Abraham that they were going to end up in heaven? Just being in the covenant. And obey the covenant. They didn't need a church Messiah. It didn't make any sense to them. That's why Paul says it was an offense. The very idea that God would be hanging on a tree made no sense. And to the out now pagan, it just sounded ridiculous. Again, Greek here does not, not talk about ethnic Greek, but the, the, the Hellenistic whether he's Jew or Gentile, the, the worldly-minded person didn't fit their worldview either. Because there's no such thing as sin to begin with, it, 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 in some senses, to Greek thought at the time, man could figure out everything. And since all matter is evil, there's no way that God is going to take on flesh and be crucified. But the gospel is a divine revelation that can only be found in the Bible. It is humble sanskrit, but that it causes us to trust in God alone. And the point of all this will be that he does it in a way so that only he gets credit for our salvation, which undermines the world of Christ's darkness. And so here are the two main reasons why the natural man, all natural man, cannot believe. Either we demand to see with our eyes, or it has to fit into our way of thinking. Faith needs neither. It is based on what God says. And the application is called comes to the light that you see the wisdom of God in the world. And we believe. And so in verse 20, Paul asks, starts to ask a series of questions. Where is the wise man described in favor of his age? And I think he means here, where are, where are they in the church? Look around and see whether you see any of them in the church, and chances are he says you're not going to see it. And at that, God planned it that way. Paul would have the Corinthians look around and see where the intellect, the intellectual scholars giants are. By and large, those who so highly esteemed in this world are absent in the church, and absent so far as the outworking of God's purposes in human history. So, verse 21, part of God's plan was that 
known about, known about, as Romans 1 talks about, we, we can know something about the power of God, but for one to get right with God and come into a special relationship with Him, you're going to have to have special, inward, spiritual revelation of light of the Holy Spirit. And this is demonstrated to both Jew and Gentile who cannot find God because they reject the gospel, which is what he's putting but look at verse 24 now we come to a third group in one sense a, a, a second group but you've got the Jew and the Gentile which are both represent all lost people but in verse 24 you have the call you got the rejectors now the call but to those who are called both Jew and Greek Christ the power of God to them, Christ is received as the power of God and the wisdom of God's heart. God calls them with power, otherwise they would be just like the Jews of the Greeks. There would be, be no other uh, report. Notice here, um, oh, okay. Romans 8.30 And those whom he predestined, he also called. And it's a familiar verse we talked about before, but we, we, we see the, the, the special kind of calling, right? That those who are called, those that he called are justified, and to whom he justified, he also glorified. You might ask, I thought I was saved through faith. Where, where is faith there? Well, faith is in the call. When God calls us, we respond to that call. It's his call that enables us to have faith. But all this is illustrated in Genesis 1, where there was nothing, and his voice brought forth energy, light, and light. God's calling, when Jesus created the heavens and the earth, he spoke them into existence. And this is illustrated like in 2 Corinthians 4. And even if our gospel has failed, it has failed to those who are perishing. And again, this is right in line with what he's saying here in our text. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ the Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, Genesis 1 now is an illustration, let light shine out of darkness, has in the very same way shown in our hearts give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We were all born with darkness in our hearts, but one day God chose to give light. He spoke it by the power of the gospel, the Holy Spirit, that brought forth light. Then then, well, read Romans uh, 4, 17, verses. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom we believe, who gives life to the dead and calls us to existence the things that do not exist. Here, God uh, did speak to Abraham that same, it reminds us that God, when he, uh, he gave life to Sarah, who was dead, her womb was dead, and he gave life to her, and brought forth Isaac. Dead men do not and cannot call themselves into life. You perhaps can illustrate it if uh, if Jeff were asleep like this, I told him he's free to sleep, but 
this illustration that I think you can do this. And I said, wake up. There's something in the power of my voice as it causes the air to vibrate and start pounding upon his eardrums that would cause him to wake up. The, your, my voice would cause wakefulness. And of course, if you think about Jesus when he raised Lazarus from the grave, he, he gave his voice, brought life, gave life to Lazarus. And Lazarus came forth. I, I once heard a preacher say that when in, 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 in railing against Calvinism and the sovereignty of God, you know, and how that we use uh, Jesus raising Lazarus as the illustration of conversion. He says, when Jesus said, come forth, Lazarus who was dead came forth. So he says, I guess dead men can respond. Uh, really? That's what you get out of that? That dead men can respond to voice? I mean, it, it's just amazing what some people will do to deny what the Bible teaches. But while I could wake someone out of their sleep with my voice, I cannot give life to a dead person with my voice. I don't have the power to give life. So if you're asleep, I can call you out. I can wake you up from that. But no amount of just as I am is going to wake the dead person out of his spiritual deadness unless the power of the gospel through the Holy Spirit is involved. So sound can stir those asleep, but it can't give life to spiritually dead. My voice can't save anybody. And my voice speaking the gospel can't save anybody. I am not wise enough, and no man is, to convert somebody. God must do this. Only God can talk to us. So if you're a Christian this morning, this is why you save one of God's spirit. You are spiritually dead. Christ and his word and his life and promises that very little meant nothing you did not love him you did not trust him you did not enjoy him you were dead to those things then one day God called you and you rose from the dead and the sprouts of spiritual life brought, broke forth from the ground as you tasted uh, true faith and true love in Jesus Christ true joy for the first time and all that happened because God did it. I want you to know so that you give him the glory. See, the reason, as I said before, the reason this is important is not just so we have theological differences. It is because one cannot give God the proper glory if you think that God did what he could, but I had to respond on my own in some way. If you have only been called by me or some or your parents or some other preacher, then you will never have any confidence at the end of the day that you will be saved. But if you today say in your heart, I embrace Jesus Christ as the power of God for my salvation and move from God in my life, then you have been called. You just decided to become a Christian. There's no reason to have any assurance. God's not involved in it. He hasn't But if you've been created a new person by the call of God, then that's different. That's the second thing to consider about your call. The call of God is effective. But the, and it can create what it demands. But the call of God also 
brings assurance and brings things to the table. Gift departs something to us. So let me just hear one. I'll slip it away here. Let me just kind of briefly go through some of this. We're, there's some things we're called to. Eternal life. Fight the good fight. Good fight of the faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called. Life and knowledge. That you were a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness to his marvelous light. We're called for freedom from sin. You were called to freedom, brothers. Lastly, you're called to glory. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory, in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That verse certainly gives all the credit power to the Lord. But let me just here close. Last point is that we were called to call God to decide to bring assurance. And this only makes sense. Because as I said, if God from the very, from eternity chose to save and saw to it that the Holy Spirit came and did the work of conversion. He's not going to do that and then uh, just let all fall apart and let me somehow escape, right? Election is the greatest need to know that we are saved. That since because God can work and he's going to see it to the end. He, he intrudes in our lives to accomplish his purpose. Now, there are those who believe in eternal security but deny the sovereignty of God and salvation. The problem with that is that it's a contradiction. Because they'll say, God cannot interfere with my will. It's Satan. It's gotta be, my will's gotta be completely free. I've gotta do it all. But then God saves me and now they say, well, God can interfere with my will to keep me. I cannot lose my salvation. I cannot go away from Christ. So why is it okay for God to interfere with my will to keep me saved, but not to interfere with my will to keep saved? I never understood why one is okay and the other is not. Did God decree and predestinate and elect us and then stand back and see if we're going to allow it to happen? No, it's the counsel of God that shall stand. Romans 9, 11. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purposes of election might continue, God has a purpose in electing, not because of their works, but because of him who called. And they see an illustration of this. Titus, 2 Timothy 1.9 Who saves us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our words, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave to us in Christ Jesus for the age again. Both of those verses, among other things, says that God in eternity had a purpose in saving us, and he's going to make sure it takes place. This is God's work. He did not save us or devise a plan and hope that we're going to cooperate. It expressly says that our calling is not in on our ability to answer, but he brings it about to glorify his own purposes. So he doesn't leave his eternal purposes of the universe in our hands. And how silly.
well as the biblical to assume so. God isn't responding to our self-made faith. He is making sure everything he planned comes about, which must include saving all he determined to save, and he does that by changing our hearts. So, because we are called by God, and we're almost done here, because we are called by God and not ourselves, we know it will come to pass. It is the effectual call of God that brings, helps bring assurance. Uh, we read, I did put on the screen, but Romans 11, 29 says, The gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Notice what Jesus says in John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I nothing them follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So it's the power of God that determines that no one shall lose their salvation when God saves. He, he's not going to un- let that be undone. And then for Jude 1, uh, verse 24, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. It's God's power that gets us saved. It's God's power that keeps us saved. And these are foundational truths. And at the heart of it is the sovereignty of God and our total dependence upon him. And we'll, get, we'll, we'll finish this up more fully next week. But I think one thing Paul wants to create in us it's a feeling of desperation. Not in a bad sense. I don't, I don't want us to go home feeling desperate about something. Not in a debilitating way, but one that knows that without Christ, without His wisdom that's revealed in Scripture, we are a mess. We have nothing. If we don't have this book to explain things to us and to give us life, we're desperate. It's when we are full of ourselves that we lose love and unity. And so it's a leap to Christ, not to a man that brings unity when we realize what Christ has done for us. And so if you think you can get right with God, after you give yourself to what you really love for all your life, and then as you see your life coming to a close, you're just going to decide one day to convert You don't have the power to search. You don't have the intellectual ability to make that choice. It can only come after you share the good news that you are totally dependent upon God. And then only if God opens your heart to see his glory. So hear the good news and believe this is my God. If you respond by faith, repentance and faith, then I know that God has accompanied the message that I hope was right there that here today is that my voice has already been converted. But if not, today is the day of salvation. And then, Christian, do you have the same desperate feeling today that you had back then? If this is true, that we have nothing apart from Christ, then that's still true. We still are dependent on the Word of God. We need God's Word. We need His power. We need to be a praying people, a one that seek after God, and we need to be that for the day that we die. Nothing ever changes. 
either we get to 